0: Uh, Can I encourage you now to open up your Bible to Romans chapter 9, which is on page 801. Is it light enough for everyone to see? Do we need more lights on? Great, thanks Nick. Romans 9 on page 801 and we'll look from verse 6. It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated, At the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one, and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Des is going to come now and explain the word of the Lord to us.
1: Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, uh, we come to you eager to hear what you've got to say. Please help us turn that eagerness into obedience. Please help us love you more as we hear you speak to us. Amen. Our coffee machine broke the other day. I did everything I normally do. That morning. I ground the beans, I packed the hopper, I twisted the grip into place, I turned the dial and I waited with my usual sense of eager expectation. But instead of what normally happens next, the comforting rhythmic chug of the pump followed by two rich caramel streams of caffeinated goodness going down into my cup, there was a loud bang, a pause, And then water started streaming out of every opening and over everything except my cup. Now, needless to say, I was disappointed. I love my morning cup of coffee. But I'm not telling you all this because I was just disappointed, I'm telling you because I was also a little bit angry. You see, in my mind, this wasn't just a cup of coffee which I was looking forward to, But which I was entitled to. Although we'd only had the machine for six months and I'd always quite happily had instant in the past, maybe occasionally plunger for a treat, somehow this part of my morning routine had now become my right. The coffee machine hadn't just disappointed me, it had cheated me. And it got me to thinking about where else I feel that same sense of entitlement to things. Very often things which when I actually step back a foot, I actually realise I have no right to whatsoever. I mean, of course I could multiply minor examples like this. The irritation at the aeroplane that doesn't have the little screens in the back of the seats rather than having to share the big one with the terrible documentary. Or as I sit fuming in my car at the red lights, the increasing conviction coming over me that it knows I'm in a rush and it's just doing it to spite me. I mean, of course I could say that. But I think it also goes deeper. So I go to university and I just expect that I'll get that good job. But Then I get ill and I miss my final exam and the deadline passes for registration and someone else gets that job. Or I do and say all the right things to that guy or that girl and yet they choose someone other than me. I feel disappointed of course, but if I'm honest, Don't I also feel just that little bit cheated? Or I do everything right, as best as I can, and serve at church and love my neighbours and read my Bible religiously, and yet I still don't get asked to lead the new Connect group. And I feel cheated. You see, for whatever reason, human beings seem to have an inbuilt sense of entitlement to the good life. To put it in biblical language, We feel we have a right to blessing. And I think that that feeling of entitlement, that feeling of a right to be blessed, is a symptom of a deeper problem. It's a symptom of an idea that blessing is just something that's mine for the taking, something that's under my control, something I can have at my will. Now, as Christians, We instinctively know that's not right. We all know that we're sinners and deserve nothing from God. And the way anything we get from Him, any blessing, is only from His hand. But how, brothers and sisters, do we actually feel that? How do we come for that information to go, to travel that difficult foot south, from my head to my heart? How can I come to learn with all of my being, my mind and my heart, That it's only from God that blessing comes. Well, as we look tonight at the character of Jacob from Genesis, I think we find a powerful example of this very process. How can I get blessing from God? Well, we're going to look tonight at that under just three points. The first point is entitled simply this The Contender. The Contender. Well, that's exactly what Jacob is. Now, if you're new here tonight, uh, we're, you'll know that, or you won't know rather, that we're up to our third of a, of, of a four-sermon series on the four great men who form the backbone of Genesis 12 to 50. Now, we saw in the past two weeks that the first two of those men are absolutely models of Christian behavior. God promises Abraham almost limitless blessings, and against all the odds, Abraham trusts him. Isaac is almost sacrificed by his father, But obediently goes along with it only to be snatched by from back from god from the teeth of death at the last minute but tonight i think it's fair to say that we come across the black sheep of the family abraham's grandson and isaac's son jacob genesis is just really frank about this guy abraham's the man of faith isaac is the boy wonder come back from the dead but jacob is a sneaky simpering greedy manipulative little weed. If this book were a a movie and he was a character, don't think Pride and Prejudice, think Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. He is that kind of guy. You see, the very first moment of his life tells that story. I don't know if you know, but Jacob was actually a twin. He was born second, but only just second to his brother Esau. And when he came out, they found him actually grasping at his brother's heel, hanging onto it, his little mitt. And that's in fact how he got his name. Jacob literally one means one who nips at the heel, or just put more simply, grasper. And as we look at Jacob's life through Genesis, we see that that title is particularly apt. Jacob is a grasper in every sense of the word. He's ambitious, deceitful constantly nipping at the heels of other people. And if there's one thing that Jacob spends his entire life grasping at more than anything else, it's blessing. And in particular, the blessings God gave to other people. We see it with his brother Esau. You're probably already familiar with the story of Jacob cheating Esau out of his inheritance. It's one of the most uh, famous in the Bible. Let me just read it to you briefly. It's... uh, Genesis twenty-five, twenty-nine to 34. This is the climax. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why they also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good's the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. You see, this inheritance was a huge part of God's blessing to Esau. That was going to be his living. And yet, he's tricked out of it by Jacob for the price of some porridge. It's pretty clear that in the craftiness and the grasping stakes, Esau is just no match for Jacob. But we also see it with his own father, Isaac. In Genesis chapter 27, Isaac is lying dying and he sends Esau out to hunt for his last meal. And he promises that when he comes back from the hunt and brings in that food that he'll bless him. But Jacob, left behind, crafty man than he is, takes advantage of Isaac's old age and poor eyesight and dresses up as Esau and pretends to be his older brother and tricks him out of his blessing instead. You see, Isaac is also clearly no match for for Jacob. We see it also with his boss, Laban. As you can imagine, after all these events, Jacob is not exactly popular with either Esau or his dad, and so he runs off to live with his uncle. And we see that in chapter 31 of this book. And for a while, it really does look like he's about to settle down to an honest living. He gets married and starts looking after Laban's goat breeding business. Now... We have to be fair, Laban is not exactly an angel either, and he ruthlessly exploits Jacob's feelings for his daughter, Rachel, in order to cheat him out of his wages. But it's not too long before Jacob has struck back. He runs away with both Rachel and most of the herds. He takes his blessings as well. Esau, Isaac, Laban, none of them are any match for Jacob when it comes to stealing blessings. He spends his life taking them. Inheritances, dying wishes, livelihoods. He's a grasper through and through. You see, for Jacob, like so many Australians, blessing is just there for the taking. But the really perverse thing about Jacob is that he spends his life stealing what God has promised to give him for free. You see, the, thre- the central thread that ties all of this story together, all ever since chapter 12, is God's promise to Abraham to bless him and his descendants. And yet because of that, or despite it, Jacob goes it alone. You see, I think the heart of Jacob's sin is not so much that he wants a blessed life, but that he looks everywhere but to God to get it. It's not that he wants blessing. He never goes to the right person. Now, I think it's worth pausing for a moment before we carry on, just to consider that for a moment, because, you know, I'm just not really convinced that we're necessarily all that different either. You see, we want to live lives full of blessing, don't we? We want the security of the kind of integrated life that has enough of everything, physically, emotionally, spiritually, To make us really fully at peace in the world. Now, don't get me wrong, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. As we've seen all through this series, God really does want to bless us. But I think where we go wrong is by seeking blessing in the wrong places. We ignore God's promise of blessing and start going after it under our own steam. We start grasping for it. I think one of the chief ways we grasp for it is in exactly the same way that Jacob does physical security. We surround ourselves with material goods in an attempt to insulate ourselves from the uncertainties of life. It's as if life is a box and I'm going to put myself in the box and post myself through life. But I know that the postal service of life is not really that good with boxes, it's kind of a rough handler. And so, like any good package, I need packing. And so I pack around me a job. And I pack around me a husband or wife, or I pack around me a reputation, or I pack around me, you could multiply examples, but you get the picture. I surround myself with things, things that I get from here, things from there, just to stop me from being buffeted around in the box of life as I get posted through it. We spend our life racing around, securing our good jobs, and our townhouses, and our four-wheel drives, and our investment portfolios. And it's only when we've pinned them down that we even begin to feel secure. I think we're particularly at risk of a thing like this in a place like Kirribilli. So many of us are used to such a high standard of living that we don't even realize how far gone we are. We upgrade televisions that already work perfectly well. Our definition of when a skirt, not me, uh, our definition of when a skirt stops being new is weeks, no longer months or years. I no longer really feel like I've been on holiday unless I've left New South Wales. I actually feel deprived when my coffee machine breaks. We start grasping after blessing like Jacob does, searching for security, but leaving God out of the equation. Now let me be clear, it's not wrong to be rich, but it is wrong to be greedy, to grasp for the blessings of this life, to find our security in them. It is, in some ways the very essence of sin. I think if we're honest with ourselves, most of us can see a fair bit of Jacob in us, grasping for blessing in all the wrong places. But in some ways, as Christians, we can be even worse. Because if that's the treadmill we're on, we start ignoring the fact that the blessing God promises to us are so much greater than those promised to Jacob. Jacob was promised possessions in the way that Abraham was, a land and a family and a great name. But in Christ, don't we have so much more? I mean, Ephesians 1 can go on to say that in Christ we have every blessing, not just possessions and security. In fact, in this world, sometimes we won't have those things. But security in front of God. The security that lets us know that when one day, and there will come this day, When we face God, face God in all of our greed, and all of our graspingness, and all of our insecurity. But despite that, because of what Jesus has done, we can be forgiven. We can be right with God. And yet we find more security in knowing the fact that we have health insurance. Jesus died for us. Jesus, the man who had everything, says Philippians do, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but came down to earth, became a man, and gave his life willingly for us. Yeah, we grasp for things, but we always come to the wrong guy. That's the human condition. That brings us to our second point, the title fight. And I warn you, there is a pun involved, which will become clear in a few minutes. You see, because it's at this point that I think we really come to a turning point in Jacob's life. We come to a passage in chapter 32, and I'll read it out as we go. There was no point in reading it before, because it kind of ruins the surprise of the passage, and it's an absolute cracker. Turn there now, chapter 32, verse 22. Um, We're coming to a point here in Jacob's life. It's directly after Jacob has just nicked off with all of Laban's herds, and he's run off. Now having burnt his bridges there, he now has to return home but the only problem is that Esau is smack bang in the middle of his way and Esau has managed in the meantime to get quite powerful himself. You can imagine that Jacob is somewhat nervous about meeting his brother who he so rightly you know got away with but crafty as ever, Jacob comes up with a plan. He divides up all his herds and all his family and sends them ahead of him as gifts to give to Esau so that by the time he comes to him, Esau will have been placated. He will all be okay. We meet this scene just at the last moment. He has just sent the last of his family and we find him standing on his own just as night falls. As we read the passage though, we realize something quite surprising. Jacob thought the greatest challenge of his life was coming the next morning. It was actually coming that night. Let me read to you verses 22 to 24 of Genesis 32. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he'd sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. I don't know about you, That last verse just sends shivers up my spine. It's just incredibly creepy. George Orwell's book, 1984, opens with a similar line. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. The sentence starts in a world you're very familiar with, and ends in a place that is quite different. We don't know who this man was, or is, or where he came from. All we know is that he and Jacob wrestled the entire night. And as we read on, it frankly only gets weirder. Look at verse 25. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. As the night wears on, it gradually becomes apparent to this man that Jacob, scrapper that he is, he can't beat him, at least by natural means. And in a move reminiscent of every Hong Kong action film you've ever seen or ninja film, where the guy knows the exact pressure point to kind of put on your neck so that you kind of Ooh, down like that. That's what he does. Puts his hand on his hip, Jacob. And the kind of thing that would normally, I'm told by doctors, actually would take a car crash to do, with one touch of his hand, dislocates his hip. There's something highly unusual about this guy. But if this mysterious man starts to confuse our expectations about him, Jacob acts true to form. Ever the grasping scrapper, he grips hold of him until dawn. And the reason why, if we've learned our lesson from Genesis beforehand, isn't hard to guess. Look at verse 26. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob, surprise, surprise, is grasping, quite literally, for a blessing. But it's here that the scene becomes really seriously weird. Because having fought through the night, the two men now finally introduced themselves. Look in verse 27. The man asked him, what's your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you've struggled with God and with men and have overcome. But something so fitting about Jacob's reply when he gives his name, to have spent a name wrestling with a man literally wrestler or grasper. And yet it's in what follows that there is something even more profound. Rather than give his own name, the man renames Jacob. Israel. literally, he wrestles with God. And in renaming Jacob, he gives his own name. Jacob has wrestled with the creator of the universe. Reminds me of the story of three boys in America uh, some years back, riding on a bus. They were in a pretty kind of playful mood, really. And they walked on, and it was a fairly empty bus. And they, they saw a guy very casually dressed in a tracksuit and a beanie up the back. And they thought they'd have some fun with him. So they started making jokes at his expense, seeing if they could get a rise out of him. He said nothing. Thinking, well, we can push this a bit further, they started to directly taunt him and tease him. Still, he said nothing. Upping the ante even further, they began to shout and scream at him, challenging him. But he did nothing. The bell rang, bus stopped, and the guy stood up to get off. Turns out he was a fraction bigger than they had at first anticipated. And as he stood up, he walked past in his tracksuit and beanie and without a word, handed them his business card, got off the bus and walked off. I looked down at it. Just four words. Joe Lewis, professional boxer. For those of you who know your history, you'll know that these three boys picked a fight with the man who would go on to be the world heavyweight boxing champion of the world 11 times running. They had been in the presence of greatness and they hadn't even known it. And in the same way Jacob gets a nasty surprise. His wrestle really is literally a title fight. He enters it with one name but leaves it with another. You wrestled with God, Israel. You see Jacob finally comes to the right person for a blessing but he comes for it in the wrong way, trying to wrestle it from him and again I'm not sure that we sometimes don't try and do exactly the same thing. We may recognise that true blessing, true peace only comes from God but I try and wrestle it from Him in, on my own terms. Now, of course, I don't do it physically but we can wrestle with Him in other ways, can't we? We bargain with God. We tell Him we'll follow Him but on my terms. I remember leading an evangelistic Bible study with a girl who, who took precisely this line. She was interested in Jesus and could see the need to follow him, but just could not stomach the doctrine of hell. And so she literally attempted to bargain with God. I will become your disciple so long as I don't have to believe in this. It didn't seem in the least bit unreasonable. It was fine to bargain with God. And in fact, it seemed that she was doing quite a a good deal. You get a brand new disciple in exchange for a minor doctrinal concession. God, I'll follow you, but on my terms. Now, before we start to chuckle at that, especially the Christians among us, we do it as well. I reckon an absolute classic, and I'm just as absolutely guilty as the next person, is the way I read the Bible. I come to the Bible with my sleeves rolled up. I read it and I look at something that clearly tells me I'm in the wrong. It clearly tells me to do something I don't want to do. Or it tells me to stop doing something that I don't want to stop doing. And yet I will spend hours upon hours reading it and moving it and wrestling with the text to make sure that it says something that I, so that I don't have to change. Does that sound familiar? I'll pour hours into it, wrestling with him, trying to get out what I want. Trying to get it into submission. We want blessing and we expect it to rise like the sun every morning. And even when we come to God for it, we come to it on our terms, not on His. But the final point is really the resolution of this story. And I wish I'd put it up on the screen because it really, well actually maybe I have, it's, it's got the, the question mark, he says looking around, the winner is? question mark," Because the winner of this fight, according to the story, seems a little unclear. Because even though Jacob attacks God, wrestles with him for blessing, well, God gives him that blessing. Look there in verse 29. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. What does that mean? Has Jacob actually overpowered God? In fact, in some parts of the story, it seems that way. Look there in verse 25. The man saw that he could not overpower Jacob. You've struggled with God, verse 28, and with man, and overcome. But when we look deeper, we see that it's actually God who wrestles Jacob into submission, not the other way around. You see, when the man is unable to overpower him, it seems to mean unable to overpower him naturally. When he chooses to end the fight, he can do so simply with a touch of his hand. And I think we see some of that when Jacob asks for his blessing. You see, Jacob tenaciously clings on to God and as we picture the scene, we see him pinning God to the mat, demanding a blessing from him. But when he asks for that blessing, we can't hear the tone of his voice. The Genesis account doesn't give it to us. But another account does in Hosea, hundreds of years later. Let me just read it to you. Hosea chapter 12, verses 3 to 4. Here it's talking about Jacob's descendants, Israel. But it looks back on this event and reads it this way. In the womb, Jacob grasped his brother's heel. As a man, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. See, Jacob doesn't pin God to the ground and demand blessing from him. No, Jacob climbs on for dear life, maimed, crying and begging for blessing. He's like the deranged patient who bursts into the doctor's rooms and holds them up, demanding the drugs. Although it's the patient who's making the threats. As long as the doctor has the drugs, what the patient wants, we all know that he or she has the upper hand. And Jacob seems to realize this. When the fight's over, his view of it is that he's got out by the skin of his teeth. Look there in verse 30. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it's because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. So why does God go through this whole rigmarole? Why doesn't he simply end the fight straight away? Pardon me. I think it's because he wants this moment to stick in Jacob's memory. He could have just thrown him to the mat straight away, touching the hand to the hip. But God wants Jacob to remember, what it was like to fight God for a long time and to lose. And God gives him plenty to remember it by. Jacob would have limped away from that fight. Every time one of his descendants has a roast dinner, you can see it there in verse 32. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of their hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Every time he introduced himself, hi, I'm he struggles with God. He remembers that day, remembers his defeat, and that his blessing was not forced from God, but begged. I think there is some intentional ambiguity here. God cannot be forced to bless us, but he can be begged. And for those of us who have felt like we are wrestling with God, don't necessarily shrink back from that. There is a sense in which Jacob wrestled with God and he did overcome. He was tenacious, he begged. The Psalms are full of stories of people who plead out to God, cry out to him in their affliction, God why are you doing this to me? Give me justice, give me an answer, I want it now, you've promised it. And it's looked on with approval. Jesus himself can be so audacious, as to to describe God as an unjust judge who only gives judgment for the plaintiff because she's a nag. She keeps knocking on his door. Now, it's not necessarily wrong to struggle with God because we cry out to Him in our frustrations, not run away from Him. Look, I don't know what your particular struggle with God our Father is, I'm sure you've got one, mine is perfectionism. I cannot admit that I was in the wrong. I just can't do it. And I always want things to be done my way. And when I do things well, I write that down in my mental mental notebook and I bring it to God and I show it to Him and I say, see, look at this, isn't this good? You can accept me on this basis, can't you? No, okay, well, I'll go off and do it again. And so I go off and do it again, and again, and again. Now, the Christian part of my brain knows that that is wrong. I know that grace only comes from God. I know that I can't wrestle a blessing from God. I know that. But it takes every fiber of myself to really understand that. I believe in salvation by grace alone seven days a week. I believe it on Tuesdays. Maybe. I don't know what your struggle is, but God can take it. If you're angry with God, if you're railing against Him because of someone you've lost or something you've lost, He's doing something in your life or in the lives of those you care for that you just cannot understand. And you think to yourself, well, I can't possibly bring that to him. I must always keep a straight up a lip or whatever the expression is. I can't possibly bring it to him. I don't want to do it because he's made of glass and he's going to shatter. And if I do anything like that, that's sacrilegious and I'm going to be wrong. No. Jacob struggled with God. I struggle with God. You can. He can take it. You can beg him for blessing and he will give it to you the security of knowing that your salvation is safe and found in Jesus. But it also tells us, doesn't it, that when we see Jacob, a sinner like him, who deserves blessing, not at all, that a guy like him can get it from God. It means that there is nothing you can possibly have done that is so bad that God cannot forgive you. Blessing is yours not for the taking but for the asking. And if you are here tonight thinking that God is so holy and so unapproachable that he could not possibly accept you on your own merits, you are absolutely dead right. But if you understand that God Loves you so much that he sent his only son who grasped at nothing to die for you. To give it to you as a gift. You can have it. And there's nothing you can have done that can stop that. Jacob finally figured it out. He came to the right guy for blessing and he worked out after a long struggle the right way to do it. It's examples like his that we need to follow and think on and reflect on and pray for help to, to follow. But let me pray. Dear God and Father, we, uh, we struggle with you. Uh, we wrestle with you and we do so knowing that you can take it. And yet at the same time we pray, please help us not to do so presumptively. When we come to you for blessing, help us to beg for it, not to try and seize it. Help us to understand that your grace is sufficient for everything and that it's you alone to whom we should come for all the blessings you hold out to us in Christ. And we ask all this in his precious name. Amen.